You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. check-in. Let's do it. Jess Aberhart. Rob Field. Long time no see. Hey, friend. Hey, we took a hey, break hey. for Thanksgiving and it felt like an eternity. You know, we've been going strong weekly and then to take, take the holiday off felt like it felt like it's been a while, which means... I know, it's just so much to catch up on, which it is. is not the point of this podcast, actually, but we could spend a whole hour on our catch up. We could. We only have like three minutes. We could. So let's give me give me the, the two minute version of the last two weeks since we've talked because it's been it's been about that time. Catch me up on uh, the holidays and all the things. Okay. Well, first, it's just nice to be in December. So like we're only a couple of weeks out from the new year. I made it through 21. Yeah, we're doing our very best. So Thanksgiving was great. My son was home from college and we picked out our tree this year, which I was thrilled yeah. by. Didn't you say you like ordered it last in the spring or something? You were you were on it this year. Yeah, yeah. End of summer, I put, put myself on a waiting list because I bought in. First of all, I bought into the hype. I, I can't stand the news. I can't stand it. And then, you know, the telephone game of like the fury of it's going to be a shortage. So I was like, there's going to be a shortage. <laughs> in August, put my tree on a uh, waiting list so I would have one. And then my son and I were out getting coffee and we we're on our way back home and there's Trosa and there's this beautiful tree. And I go, Trey, that's our tree. And so we drove into the Trosa lot and we were 45 minutes before they opened. We sat there and waited. As soon as they, you know, opened their little gate, we walked in, I saw this tree and I said, that's it. It's 11 foot Fraser fir. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. How do, you, how do you put the star on top of something that large? Well, I have a six foot five son. That's true. Does he ladder. stand on your shoulders? Was it? <laughs> no, he oh, okay. Well, we had a smaller tree and he was like six, but now he is not. He is almost 20. So it is time to get him on a ladder and do uh, the thing. So yeah, so we have a beautiful tree in our home. It makes me feel like we're back to some kind of normalcy because last year we put up our artificial tree. It didn't feel as... I love my tree though. So no knocking artificial trees. I, I right, follow up question. I'm not going to knock artificial trees. I'm going to ask, uh, okay. what color are the lights? Uh, yeah, do you we have do this every year. about that? And is it, is there tension between you and Trey about this? Yeah. So when Trey was small, it was colored light because my ex-husband was really into it and that's how they grew up. And so I, I acquiesced, but then when Trey got older and I got divorced, we went to white lights and we've had white lights ever since. <laughs> there you go. And now, yeah. Aren't you colored light? I, I mean, in Am my I, heart, yes. I, I have, my wife prefers white and she has yeah. pulled me over to her and your side. Like, I, I feel like I enjoy that. And I still find a way to pepper in color lights around the house and stuff. One of our friends gave oh, us you a that? gift. Oh, I can do that. So one of our, one of our friend, our family friends found out that this was like early in our marriage. This was a contentious thing. Not really like, but a fun way. And so they gave me a gift of these like really bright LED. It's just a single strand of these ones that last forever, colored lights. Mm -hmm. And so I just, it gives me a lot of joy to find every year to think about where am I going to put these in a really, really obvious spot in the house as a way to like carve out my 
territory. And, and annoy your wife. That would drive yeah, me crazy. Because that's the Christmas spirit, right? Just kind of just sticking it, just kind of sticking it to, your, to the ones you love. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, take that. Take that. Oh gosh. <sighs> well, and before we get to your your couple of weeks, I want to also say for my Michigan fans who, you know, killed the game with the Ohio State Michigan game, I am an Ohio State fan, diehard, and I was destroyed. And then I decided that this is how you restore balance in a rivalry. We've won for nine years in a row. So Michigan can have their little win. They can take it into the holidays. Happy New Year to them. And we'll get them next year. I can, right, I so can relate in a little bit. Record. Yeah. We have a strong Raleigh contingent and following here. So I can relate a little bit in the, as a UNC fan, as we lost to the, to the Wolfpack. That was, I've got a lot of Wolfpack family members. So I've had to just kind of be quiet on a lot of group messages in the last couple of weeks. So tough, right? Yeah, it is. It's the burden. It's the okay. cross we bear, Jess. You know, as being the superior teams, we just gotta. You know. Just, just all you have to do is say we're restoring balance. Like we're allowing it to happen. Just go ahead and restore balance in the rivalry. It makes you feel so, so much better because paternalistic. Like, you have the power to restore. That's yeah. why. That's why they hate us. That's why they hate us, Jess. Because right. we exactly right. They think we look down on them, <laughs> and then they listen to this conversation. It. and They know. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's about justice. Isn't this a just? <laughs> oh man! Please ask right, me. Friend. Ask me about something your, else so I can change the subject. Your turn. Yeah, oh, your turn. Not going to get that invited back at Thanksgiving next year. So I had a okay, I had a great great holiday. Our tree is up as well. Probably the most significant thing that happened to me since the last time we talked. My family, we get really into the uh, celebration of decorating for Christmas right after uh, Thanksgiving. So on on Black Friday. So we we. We're done with Thanksgiving and it's just like, hey, go get the tree, decorate the house. It's go, go, go. My wife loves the Christmas holiday. So I'm holding her back before Thanksgiving and she's just ready to ready to channel that energy. Yeah. The thing is though, we had we had so Black Friday took on a whole new meeting. We came back from out of town from Thanksgiving to a house that the heater broke. And this was like, you know, this past week was like in the twenties. So I've got four young yeah. kids and a, and a puppy. The heater broke. So we're going to take a couple of days to get the, the them out to fix it. So we're in like, you know, the, the house is is really super cold. And then all my kids get a stomach bug and my dog oh, gets yeah. it. I don't know if they gave it to each other or what, but I've got a sick dog. I've got sick kids and no heat in the house. And I'm like, I'm thinking about this on Black Friday. I'm like, this is, this is a dark way. To, a, it feels, it feels like a Black Friday now. Like it's, it, but... He's back on now. I, I almost lost my salvation there for a little bit, but we're we're back. <laughs> I'm, I'm jamming the Christmas music and I'm, I'm getting the good vibes going again. But it, it took me to a to a dark place. Yeah, it was testing your holiday cheer. It was. Could you, lift, could you hang in there? You but we watched the we watched fire. Elf. We watched the new Grinch movie, the the new cartoon version mm -hmm. with Keenan. You know, like the, have you seen that one? It's good. You should. You would enjoy it. I, don't, I keep I keep making recommendations to you the stuff that my kids like, and I'm like I'm not sure if that's just because I'm in parent mode. You, it probably doesn't translate to people who have adult children, so I need to stop doing that. I apologize. It definitely doesn't. I started to feel offended. Like I like you think that I only watch cartoons. <laughs> well, uh, before children, we start recording, I started trying to I tried to sell you on this cartoon my kids watch for like three year olds, and I'm like, why am I doing this? Why do I want her to watch like? You just want me to. You just want me to join the party so you don't feel alone because maybe that's it. Watches children's movies. Fine. Maybe that's it. I like I just, a good children's movie every now and again. Yeah, there we go. Well, we can. You know what? We can pull our our guest in today and see. You know Please, whether it's time. You know, I think this is probably is probably time to pivot the conversation. But also, I'm gonna, since I failed at recruiting you, maybe I can get her on board 
to to some of these shows and movies. Maybe I'm sure she, she's got she's got kids in her family somewhere. Maybe be able to watch some she of this went stuff. To, she went to the Ohio State University as well. So I think you're gonna have a hard time. Dr. Moore may not be into your three year old cartoon. Is this an Ohio, Ohio Alliance forming? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, it is today on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm ready. All bring right, her on, bring her on, so I let's can, go. So let's I let's give the people what they want. Doctor <laughs> Doctor Moore, are you with us? Can you hear us? We're we're so glad to have you on. Welcome. I can hear Welcome. you. Um, but in addition to being a fan of the Ohio State University, I'm also a Carolina fan. So I mean, this you is know. Gr- what a wonderful hey I, we're I, I, purple Venn diagram back, Jess. Right? Like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's me. There's you. There's her. And in the middle, there's there's oh, yeah. It all, it, we all we all blend blend together. Yeah, this is. I love man, it. I'm excited. This is going to be this. This just took a turn. <laughs> this took a turn in the right direction. There's unity. There's unity here for this conversation. I love it. Absolutely, Doctor Moore. We're really excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for for joining us this morning. I I know our listeners are in for a real treat. And for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with your work, because you're relatively new to the role that you're in, so we're going to talk a little bit more plenty about that. But I wanted to give a little bit of your backstory before we turn the mic over to you. And kind of you just share a little bit more of uh, of what led you to the work that you do now. So Dr. Moore is the new executive director for the Center for Racial and Social Justice at Shaw University here in downtown Raleigh, a native of Durham, North Carolina. So hey, she's got a lot of triangle connections here. Okay. Dr. Moore earned her Bachelor's of, of Arts degree in economics from Spelman College. After several years in telecommunications marketing, Dr. Moore decided to pursue a career in African-American studies after seeing the difference that knowledge of Black history made in the students she was mentoring to pursue careers in STEM. She went on to earn her master's degree in African-American studies from, we know, fill in the blank here, The Ohio State University. And her doctorate in African-American studies from Temple University. Go Owls. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I'm not really an Owls fan. I don't know why I said that. Dr. Moore has had a diverse career in higher education and in nonprofit social justice. She began her nonprofit career as the, am I saying this right? Melinder Fellow? Millinder. Millinder Fellow. Okay. Millinder mm-hmm. Fellow for the city of Detroit, challenging environmental racism and advocating for the rights of employees. She's also worked in violence prevention among African-American youth and expanding philanthropy in communities of color. Woo. All right. Her most recent work now includes serving as a consultant for diversity, equity, and inclusion training and creating African-American studies curricula for K-12 through schools. Dr. Moore believes that if we're going to change the world, we must first change our world. And that begins with first changing the mind. I feel like I kind of want to stand and applaud that. that I know, like a, I do too. I also dead poets. Like we don't get, have it. What else get on your Get on your desk and say like, oh, captain, my <laughs> captain at the end of that or something. I'm inspired. It's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank uh, you. This is wonderful. Uh, and I think it's a callback to our previous episode with Janelle Aldridge, you know, just talking about starting the work with ourselves. What a great yeah. follow-up to this conversation. So Dr. Moore, it's a privilege. I'm excited for a lot of... We talked about the triple Venn diagram here. I feel like this is going to be a layered conversation because... We're going to start with your story, but also I feel like we're going to peel back the layer of the onion here of talking about the, the history of the center, the history of the community in which the center is operating and just pulling all a lot of loose threads together. Before we do that, let's just turn the microphone over to you and have you set the stage a little bit. Just tell us a bit more about what we can't learn from a bio, although you know we're already, we're already applauding from the bio, but tell us a little bit more about your story behind the scenes and specifically kind of what led you to become passionate about this now career path you've chosen of justice work in higher education? 
Well, well, thank you guys both for having me. And I'm over here just dying of laughter, which is y'all's conversation. So I know we have to segue to make it a little bit more serious now. But I guess I've been involved in social justice work my entire life. It just seems that, you know, I grew up here in North Carolina and I grew up under the years of Reagan and Jesse Helms. And when you grow as an African-American in that environment, you understand how policy can really begin to affect inequality or justice. And in addition to those growing up years, my parents were very much engaged in the community. So there was never a time when being involved in the community or fighting for justice hasn't really been a part of my, my life. And it became uh, much more, I guess, more pronounced in college, as I think it is for most people. At the time, Martin Luther King's birthday was not a holiday. So as college students, we were marching throughout the city of Atlanta for the King holiday. My junior year, I spent my junior year in England, in London in particular, and we were doing sit-ins of the university against apartheid in South Africa. So although it was fun, it was, you know, something that was very, very serious at the time. So just those formative years kind of really helped set the tone. And as I matriculated through college and really, you know, began to consider graduate school, you know, one of the things that I kind of thought about were, you know, what are the ways in which we make a difference? And these are the things that you kind of really pick up in college. One, you have the public policy approach where you're looking at how you can affect policy. And most of us do that through voting, as well as through civic engagement. That's another way in which people get involved. And I think for me, initially, my goal was to do more grassroots nonprofit work in terms of Yes, you can have this public policy approach where you're advocating for people to make a difference on a larger scale. But at the same time, I'm like, what is it that we can do within our own communities to make a difference? And that's kind of what led me to go into to graduate school. When I was working in telecommunications, we were trying to get more African-American kids in STEM. We were talking about all these Black scientists and inventors. And, and kids were like, what? Black people can invent things? You know, we, Louis Latimer with the light bulb. And we had all kinds of fun stuff. We talked to kids and told them that, if you were the kind of kid that took apart a radio or VCR, that's how old we are, that you're an engineer. You know, a lot of times kids, mm-hmm. kids get in trouble for doing that kind of work, but you're naturally curious. And if you, if you have that ability to kind of tear things apart and figure out how they work, that's the mentality of an engineer. And these, and these young people really never thought of themselves that way. So when you open up that kind of avenue of thinking about who you can be, that's kind of really what pushed me into, into graduate school. And initially, like many people, I wanted to start my own nonprofit. But really, graduate school really prepares you to be an educator. I really hadn't thought about being a college professor, but I found that as a college professor, you're actually doing that social justice and racial justice work because you're educating the next generation of leadership. And uh, it was something I really, really enjoyed. But the desire for that engagement with the community never really went away. And, you know, as you talked about um, with you did my bio, some of the different work that I've done in terms of of grassroots. Those are professional careers, not to mention all the different volunteerism that I've done. And and so when I I found this position at Shaw, it was, you know, almost, you know, fortuitous. It kind of ties into everything that I've ever done, as well as it brought me back home to to North Carolina. And it's just really interesting. I told my sister, I was like, I've traveled all over this country and looked all over for doing this type of work. And who knew that it was in my backyard the whole time? And and it's not just Shaw, but within the Triangle area, you find that there's a great deal of activism and engagement around community issues. And it's really refreshing to see an area of the country that really is focused on that. I've lived in places where engagement in the community and trying to address community problems is not really a focus uh, of the community. So, you know, those of us who grew up in the Triangle, we really take it for granted. But trust me, if you leave Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill, and you go to other places in this country to live, you find that the rest of the country is very, very different. 
And uh, it's, I'm really blessed and happy to be back in the area. Well, we're glad to have you. And you are, sounds like this is perfectly suited for you. And we're lucky that, that you found your way back to the triangle. So let's talk about where you landed. Shaw University is storied. It is a storied university and it is trailblazing in many ways. A lot of people don't know that history. I don't, you know, unless you're in a, in a room where you get the opportunity and the luxury to sit at the feet of someone who knows sort of that background. You, oftentimes we don't hear it. So I'd love for you, before we kind of dive into what your work is now with the center, why don't you talk about where the center is placed at Shaw University? Just give us a little bit of that legacy, a little bit of that background so that folks can get anchored in your work. Okay, thank you. Well, Shaw University, it's, it's, we have a history of HBCUs that are, are lauded, and Shaw is certainly one of them. It's, it's the oldest HBCU in the South. It's the oldest HBCU in the state of North Carolina. It's the first HBCU to admit women to have a co-educational experience, and it was co-educational from the very beginning. It has one of the very first medical schools in the United States, not just Black medical schools, but one of the first medical schools in the United States. It was actually the first medical school to award a four-year medical degree. I think Harvard, I'm not sure if it was Harvard, may have been the first, I'm not sure if it's Harvard. One of the, or maybe Yale, is the oldest medical school in the country, but we were the first to have a four-year medical degree. In addition to that, we had a law school, we have had a pharmacy school, and these are things that were going on in the 1880s. This is before the term, this is in the 19th century. And some of the people that we've educated have gone on to to do great things. Many HBCU college presidents came through Shaw. Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was a very prominent leader in the civil rights movement, attended Shaw. Congressman Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Jr. attended Shaw Divinity School. And I failed to mention, of course, the Divinity School. Our Divinity School is one of the leading divinity schools in the country. And it's been consistently educating community leaders for, you know, a great great many years. And to go back to the medical school, one of the first graduates of medical school was a gentleman by the name of Aaron Moore, Dr. Aaron Moore, A-A-R-O-N. And he actually was Durham's first African-American doctor. And he was actually one of the founders of North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. Um, That's a company that my father used to work for. So it's just this whole full circle, at least in terms of not only my experience, but just in terms of the contributions that Shaw has made, not only to North Carolina, but to the country at large. I actually, my office, the Center for Racial and Social Justice is housed in Leonard Hall, which was the first medical school. It's also the place where our School of Divinity is located. So this building is a historic landmark. It's the same building that was here when the medical school started, I believe, in 1886. So yeah, Shaw has a tremendous legacy and we're building on that legacy. Yeah, that that history, I mean, it's it's so rich and it's so it's such a powerful linkage to the past with that backdrop really shaping and pointing you forward for this work. It feels like it's it's almost like a compass that is continuing to point you in this direction of just shaping Shaw, the university itself, and then obviously in a a microcosm of a way, this new center that is relatively, with with such a long history, the center is pretty much brand new, right? With you being the the, the, Mm -hmm, the first mm -hmm. acting director. So would love for you just to tell us a little bit more about that origin story. So we talked about your origin story, talked about Shaw's. Now we're going to hit the uh, the other circle on the Venn diagram here, the triple Venn in present day. Talk, just walk us through the creation of the center because you have this long, rich history, and yet you're not just coasting off of that. You're you're pressing forward. You're trying to say, what can we do today to influence and shape tomorrow? Would love to just hear you speak a little bit about why this particular approach and why now, and even just what's in a name, right? Like you chose these. I'm imagining there's a lot of intentionality 
in choosing these words, people have to be very careful with the words in the last 18 months. And the words you choose matter and the ones you didn't choose matter. So the Center for Racial and Social Justice, I imagine that was a whiteboard or two that, <laughs> that finally culminated and say, why are we choosing these words? So maybe just speak to, to all of that that will lead us more to the present day and, and moving forward. Thank you for that. And, and I'm, I'm remiss in, when I talked about the historical legacy of Shaw, one of the most things that most people are familiar with is the formation of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a leading civil rights organization in the 1960s. And I spent so much time talking about the 19th century, I really didn't talk about the things that we have done in the 20th century. And Ella Baker, who was the founder of SNCC, and she's the one that brought the students to the campus. And it was, you know, she felt that the, the education that she received here and the environment was, was crucial and vital in creating the student-led organization. And one of the things that made SNCC different and Ella Baker different as a leader was that, that she felt that the students themselves had the ability and the skills and the intelligence and the stamina and the creativity to form their own organization that didn't need leadership or control or dominance from the established preacher-led, I guess I would say, civil rights organizations. And she really felt that the students could, could do that themselves. And that same energy and belief is really one of the major focuses of the Center for Racial and Social Justice. The Center for Racial and Social Justice was founded uh, by our current president, President Paulette Diller. It is her vision to have this center started. And it was something that she envisioned a few years ago, but the events of 2020 kind of gave it the impetus to really get it started. And there were several things that happened in 2020, I think that, that many people are familiar with, but one of the things, two of the things that happened were the deaths of C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, who were major figures in the civil rights movement. Of course, John Lewis was a major leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And then on top of that, we had the death of George Floyd and all of the racial protests throughout the country. So those things galvanized the creation of the center. So Paulette Dillard went to the board. The board, of course, agreed. We've been really fortunate that with the creation of the center, we've been able to get funders and different nonprofits who really believe in racial and social justice to really kind of support the work that we're doing. And in terms of the creation of a center for racial and social justice, as Shaw has been a leader in educating African-Americans, really understanding the racial component of injustice that's happening throughout this country has really been at the forefront. And Shaw is a diverse student body population. We're primarily African-Americans, but we do have students from all different backgrounds. And I think that's a, a very important aspect of our community. And we've always been that way so that we can educate and really learn from each other in this type of environment. But when we see the injustice that, that's being done against communities of color, we see that that's really got to be the focus in terms of racial justice. But also in terms of social justice, we want to move beyond just protesting in the street. There's so many facets of social justice that we need to look at. We need to look at what's happening in terms of environmental injustice or environmental racism, as, or as many of us call it. What's happening economically and what's, what's happening with housing and gentrification, what's happening in the criminal justice system. So there's so many different areas and avenues. And I know when I came to this position, I had all the different things that I wanted to do and what the president wants to do and other leaders throughout the campus wants to do, want to do. But one of the things that we do want to focus on is having students kind of guide us in the direction that they think is important. What's really the urgent issues that this generation's for? You know, with SNCC in the 1960s, 
Ella Baker allowed those students to say, okay, these are the things that we're, that we're focused on, and this is the approach that we're going to take. So, for example, voting was the big issue. They said, we're going to go to Mississippi, one of the most difficult places in this country, and register people to vote. You know, that was student led, that was a student initiative. And what we want our students to do, one of the things we have to do, first of all, is kind of educate them on social justice, because we assume that students know that. And then we're finding that they really don't know the history of social justice in this country, not only as it's confronted African-Americans, but the Native community, Latino community, the women's rights. You know, I, I told my students that in the 1960s and 70s, a woman couldn't open up a credit card without her husband or her father. So there's so many different avenues in which we can look at social justice. So in order to really accomplish our goals, what we're doing is we have a, a, a kind of a three-pronged approach. We're looking at it in terms of student-led, approaches. We're looking at faculty research and publications and also community engagement. And what my long-term goal is, I want Shaw to be the, the uh, number one social and racial justice university in the country. And what we're doing is we're creating certificate programs, ultimately a minor as well as a major. But I think to piggyback on your concept of the words we use, the focus of justice is key. You can look at different universities in the country and they have service learning or they have community engagement programs. But what we want to focus on are not only justice, but we want to focus on impact. I want our students, whatever work that we do, whatever, you know, time, the academic and historical and, and methodology piece that you get in the classroom to actual work on the ground. How do we measure and understand and have impact and how are we creating justice for this community that we're serving? So these are things that we're really being intentional about and that we're really making some serious planning and thinking about strategically how we educate our students to be this next generation of student leaders and how we get them to really understand their own power to really affect you. Well, this is a perfect alley-oop for my question because you have laid out beautifully the initiatives that you have on the table, right? It's not just, I mean, you were talking about environmental justice, right? And affordable housing. And, and you just, you kind of like laid this very broad landscape for the work that you're tackling in your new role. You also threw down the mantle about being the number one social justice university in the country. So that's a thing. That's a big statement, which I love because I like big, bold goals like that. So I'm all over that. So the question is, it's, uh, it's becoming a little commonplace to see people in roles like this, corporate, nonprofit, university, everybody, everybody has, a, has a you, if you will, somebody who's focused on this, wakes up thinking about it, is driven, is excited and passionate about this work. And, and I always am asking, and Rob and I talk about this, like, well, how do you measure success? How do you know that the things that you just laid out are working and that you're, you're kind of getting to the goal there, that, the, that you can see the end, end goal. And when do you know and how do you measure it? And so I think a lot of people wonder that. I mean, I think it's great that we're focused on it, but then how do we know that we're moving the needle? So in, in your new role, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to think that through or, you know, but I'd love to hear how you think about that and, and how you would, you know, in like a year from today. What would you say? Like, how have you how have you moved your work forward? 
Thank you for that question. And I think that's a real important piece, especially just, just in nonprofits in general. You know, how are you measuring impact? How do you know that you've had, you've achieved the goals that you've set out for yourself? And I think the, the long-term end game for us is to create a pipeline of student leadership that when they go out, once they graduate from Shaw University, they have impact. So there's a couple ways which we look at impact and measure impact. One is long-term, there's the macro, and then there's the micro. How do we measure this course that we're going to be teaching in the spring versus five or six years from now when our students are graduating out in the community. So those are those long-term impacts in terms of what our students are going to be doing. But in terms of right now, we're developing one is we have a student leadership course that's going to be on the books next semester. And then we're also going to be, there's also going to be a business course that we're working on as well. And, you know, as university professors and within the university, we tend to do the basic pre-test, post-test. Where are they at the beginning of the course versus where are they at the end of the what were your thoughts about your belief to be a change agent prior to versus after? What impact have we made with whatever, whatever community organization that we're working with? So, for example, if we're going to work, we're going to tutor children after school, can we see a measurable impact between these students' grades at the beginning prior to our coming versus at the end? If we're going to do something regarding food inequity, are we able to provide more healthy options for, for, for people in the community versus versus apt. You know, long-term, are we going to be able to measure a lower risk of diabetes and heart disease because we're able to introduce healthy foods and healthy options or community gardens in an area? If we're going to address gentrification, what sorts of policies are we going to maybe advocate to city council? You know, we're downtown Raleigh, we've got city council, we've got state government right down the street. Are we able to lobby and advocate for a particular law or a particular bill that through our work and through letter writing campaigns, we're able to get legislatures to make a change in that particular area? If we're looking at criminal justice reform, Shaw has a program where we're trying to help people who've been released get an education. What can we do to facilitate that process? These young men and women who are coming out of the criminal justice system through participating in child's programs, are they able to get a job and become contributing members to society? So there's, I think the measurement's going to depend on the programs that we do. In addition to our student focus, we're engaging, we're beginning the process of student faculty research grants. So we have the applications that actually yesterday was the last day for the faculty to turn in their applications. And all of this research has to be tied to social justice. All of the research has to have student participation and engagement. Part of the research application is what's going to be the end result at the end of this research process. What, which, when you finish this project, what's the impact going to be? So the, the faculty members have said this is the impact that we envision, and we've gotten a lot of great deal of very interesting and very engaging applications from our faculty. And then at the end of that, the student, the faculty will present at Shaw University or, or just conferences. We want to publish the, the, the research that the faculty are doing. So there's all different ways in which we're going to see impact. And a year from now, I would like to have at least the certificate program beginning. And the certificate program is not only going to be for students. We, we're also in discussions of having a certificate program for people in the community to come in and get certificates in racial and social justice, that they can go back to their nonprofits. They can go back in terms of work that they're doing or even at their corporate job and have an impact within their own particular churches or community organizations that they're a part of. And one of the things that we want to do to really have strategic impact is not only discuss the programmatic piece of a certificate program, but also the management side. Because we find in nonprofits, a lot of people have great ideas. Oh, I want to help young kids. Oh, I want to help the girls. 
but what's what's the management piece? You know, how are you going to manage your budgets? You know, all of those things that, that major funders are going to look at, we find that people with great ideas really just don't have. So we want to be able to provide some tangible, uh, transferable skills with our certificate program as well. So there's just a whole different way of we see impact with this with this organization. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. It's very layered and what is it, short-term, long-term thinking, mm-hmm. which I think is really important because this is a long game, right? But there's Absolutely. immediate, right, you know, right now in the moment, ways in which you can make change, right? And over time, that impact is great. So I love the, I love the way you're thinking about this. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Thank you. And I love when we talk to organizational leaders, Jess, over the years of doing this, you're not building this on your, your own back, Dr. Moore. You could easily come in and pick one of those many issues and say, we're going to do this and probably implement things in a short term where you have tangible results. But is that sustainable in the long term? You've decided to play the long game and let this be student driven, which is the spirit of Shaw's legacy, because the students chose to go to Mississippi and say, we're going to go lobby for voting rights. And that's what you're doing this again to say, we're going to let this be student driven. I could probably press the gas as an individual and drive my car, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to mobilize an army here of people who are exactly. going to have an impact far greater than anything I could do alone. And I think that's really, I think you are setting the table for long-term change in a way that, you know, is, is going to outlive even yourself as any good leader, I think does, right? They, they don't, they don't build something where if you remove the, the head, everything just falls away. And kind of on the, exactly. in the spirit of that, in the spirit of that question, or that comment, I guess, knowing that this is no, no one person can do this alone. Our theme this year has been around this concept of fusion friendships, meaning the relationships that are formed around common passions across lines of difference. So people coming from different backgrounds, but have a common purpose that really they, they can build that relationship on. I'd love for our listeners to hear just for you personally, obviously, there's going to be a lot of professional coalition building in your work to be able to to put out change, at least from an advocacy standpoint, right? But even just from a personal side for a minute, what fusion friendship kind of rises at the top for you that has been especially impactful for how you see the world today and how, how you you move in the role that you now find yourself? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because how we look at that concept of fusion friendships, I can, I can look at it two ways. One, one of my best friends is head of the civil division of Legal Aid Society in New York City. And she certainly took the public policy route. And I was like, oh, you're not going to be able to make change policy, you know, advocating and fighting for change. And quite frankly, the exact opposite is true. One of the things that the Legal Aid Society has done in New York City was advocate for tenant reform, especially, you know, even prior to the pandemic, you know, helping people make sure that they have their rights in terms of evictions. You know, evictions are not very easy to happen in New York and the tenants have certain rights. So having her as a, as a back and forth, her name is Adrienne Holder, has been very instrumental in terms of how you really impact change. And, and our friendship for the last several years has really impacted how I see the world and see change. But when I think of think about fusion friendships with people that we're different from. I've been fortunate in the sense that I've worked in very diverse communities with people who've had different backgrounds, but especially my nonprofit work and education work, you find that you're working with people who at least have the same goal, even if you're from a, a different, different backgrounds and different environments. So the goal is educating these children. The goal is the, is the project that we're working on to try to affect change. But if I think about people that 
I completely were different from at least ideologically, politically. And I've been thinking a lot about this as one of my first bosses. I don't know if I could put his full name, but my first boss, David, we were in telecommunications and he was, I guess I can, can say he was a very strong Republican. I wouldn't say he was ultra conservative, but we were very, very different in terms of how we thought about the world. But he was so respectful and so open and, and willing to listen. And, you know, we, we could talk about our different points of view and different. And it was never one of disrespect, but it was one of mutual learning from each other. And I think what's missing today is a lack of willingness to learn and listen to other points of views and perspectives, which it was something that was very it was something that we grew up with. I mean, we used to really debate things in high school and college, you know, even in, even as a college professor, I try to get my students to debate the different sides of the topic. And I think, and even I've taught primarily HBCUs, you find that we're not a monolith. We have different political and social and economic backgrounds and experiences. And the students bring that to the table as well. And you have to kind of navigate having conversations about really sensitive conversations with an expectation of respect. And I think, that's something that's missing right now is that respect as well as that ability to listen. I think it's, it's all about being loud and being heard and just being, you know, over talking people. You know, if we, we just finished in the city of Raleigh, the courageous community conversations, that was a partnership with the city of Raleigh and Shaw university. And this project began before I arrived, but that began with it, with a survey to the citizens of Raleigh. What is it that you think? We engage in conversations around a variety of topics. We're finishing up the report now. And the one thing that you find is the importance of listening to other perspectives and points of view. We even have people who said that this is really not important. I really think that this is a, a major issue. And it was something that we talked about. And I'm not really sure if it's something that we might be able to do. But, you know, we've talked about doing courageous community conversations with other university campuses, with our students to kind of talk about these issues in terms of race and social justice, in terms of how do we find common ground in this country. And I think, you know, the whole idea of a fusion friendship is laudable. And I think it was something that perhaps was possible a few years ago, but I don't know if people are willing, willing to listen to people who have different points of views and perspectives, if there's a willingness to learn from other folks. I see what's happening in terms of school board meetings and everybody's just yelling and screaming and carrying on. And we would love to do a critical race theory forum with legislatures who are considering anti-CRT, what they call CRT legislation. I'd love to have those meetings with parents who are concerned um, and what their concerns about. But it would have to be from a position of respect and a willingness to listen to both sides as opposed to just yelling to make your point. So that's what's really missing if we'd like to have fusion friendships where people from different spectrums and even on the job. I work with, you know, I was the only African-American female in a group of eight cisgendered white men. I never had a problem. They never treated me with any type of disrespect or felt that I couldn't do the job. And we could talk about and laugh about and joke about a variety of things. And it was never, and I don't know, maybe those were the golden days of, of racial relationships and that we pine for and that we miss. But even having done diversity, equity, inclusion work, consulting work for schools and corporations and businesses. One, it takes leadership to really appreciate the need for that. And I think people who are not privy to be people who haven't really experienced injustice. I think in America, because we're taught that we're such a great, awesome, unique country, there's an inability to look at our faults 
And so when people say, you know what, there's a problem here with our country, nobody wants to deal with that. They're like, oh, you're just making that up. That's not real. That's that's not the great America that I know. And there's got to be a willingness to say, you know, there's parts of America that aren't so great. What can we do to make it better? Any student of history can show you that once the rights and lived experiences for people of color and women, the disabled are met, life gets better for everyone. If you only think that life is good for one segment of the population, then everybody suffers. This country suffers, you know, economically. We're going to, we're losing our standing in the world right now as we speak. We're losing our standing as the beacon of democracy. We're losing our standing of what this diverse planet can represent in terms of, you know, human relationships. So it would be great if we could have more fusion friendships. And I, I've tried to locate my former boss because I'd love to just talk to him and just you know, touch base on, you know, why are you so special and so unique and why can't more people be like you? I, I understand the need to be a conservative economically and socially and politically. I understand that. I don't understand the need to be mean about it. And I don't understand the need to be vicious about it. And I think what's different now is a certain gleefulness and joy of being mean to other people. And that's that's ultimately what has to change, this desire to be mean because it's fun to be me. It's, it's, it's a bullion mentality that has taken hold of this country. So I, I relish and I, I'm happy that I've had those experiences with people of diverse backgrounds. Not only did I have it in my work experience, but I've had it, I studied at the London School of Economics where everybody there is from all over the world. And it's an important experience. It's, these are important things in order for this world and this country to move forward. Understanding the respect of other people's experiences, lived experiences, and recognizing that the work that you do to make this person's life better is ultimately going to make your life better. Yeah, that is such a fascinating juxtaposition. And I'm sure that smarter people than myself, probably like yourself and others in, in higher education, will be doing studies upon studies upon studies for a very long time about really the sociological moment that we find ourselves in and how, how the human mind is motivated, how the human heart is motivated. How do you get, we talked about in our, in our last guest talked about kind of how do you inspire both of those to work in alignment towards change and how critical listening truly is. Not listening, waiting your turn to speak, but listening actually to understand, which is a very different definition for listening that I know I'm very guilty of many, many times. I'm like, I'll, I'll not be opening my mouth right now, but I'm just waiting my turn. I'm, I'm, my, my heart and mind are closed. I just think what I have to say is more important than what you have to say. And I'm not open, but I want you to be open, but I'm not open. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Exactly. And I just, I think that when I'm hearing you talk and talk about this, it's this juxtaposition between like you're saying the, the vitriol and there is, there is a time and there's a place for just anger. Right. But I think mm -hmm. we have to be careful that we're channeling it in ways that are actually productive and I know mm -hmm. that the, the social media era that we find ourselves in, it can feel so good to aim an angry tweet out to really no one in particular. And you, it, it takes a lot of energy to do that. But what impact is that actually having? Who's, who's listening to that? Arguably, that's really cheap impact because it's easy to mm -hmm. type that up. Mm -hmm. It's not really to anybody in particular. And then you're, mm -hmm. you're withdrawing versus what's right. much harder to do is what you're talking about, which is I'm going to lean in I'm going to actually sit across the table from somebody, a person, kind of recognize their mm -hmm. humanity. I'm going to mm -hmm. do them the service of actually listening to their opinion and, and dare to potentially form a, a friendship where we could find some common ground and actually get some work done. But it's going to take a different posture. And mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. I'm not saying that all, like, it's almost like you were saying earlier of you were kind of, kind of 
throwing shade a little bit at your, your colleagues saying, oh, you're going to go do this and this. Or this. You can't affect change there. I'm not saying that platforms or you know, advocacy, there, there, is, there is a time and place for that. But I almost feel like people are choosing one extreme or the other when really you got you to see the, the validity of people have an opportunity to, to have a, a large following in the spotlight. You, mm-hmm. should, you should use that. Use that voice if you've got a large following of people that you can change hearts and minds. But also, if you don't have that, you got to lean in and, and outside of the spotlight, in the shadow, behind the exactly. curtain with your net. Because everybody has people that they can influence change with. But are you going to be willing to do the work of investing in those relationships? I almost hear you lamenting that in your answer that there aren't enough fusion friendships. There aren't enough people that are doing that work. Mm-hmm. 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 And I haven't worked in, in, in corporate America in quite some time and just thinking about some of the DEI projects that people are looking at, you know, oh, they want people to take, you know, anti-bias training. And sometimes people just do it just, you know, it's an online thing and they'll just check it off. But you really want to impact change in terms of how people interact with each other. You know, it's, it's almost as if we all have our work friends and my work friends aren't like the other people, right? You know, the white people I work with are great. I don't know about those other white people. Oh, these black people I work with are great. I don't know about those other black people. You know, it's like our community and our cocoon, or even the people that I church with or that I bowl with or whatever, my kids I went to college with. Oh, we're cool, but all those other people are just not cool. And I think that's how we all tend to look at it. I, you know, I think about the people that I've worked with, and I'm like, oh, but they're great. You know, I can imagine that they would believe such things or they would act that way. And we all, in terms of how we interact with each other, get along great. And I think growing up as a child of the post-civil rights era, we kind of thought that integration would create that. We would create a world in which we all could go to school together, we all could work together, we all learn from each other, we socialize together, we learn from each other, and gradually through that exposure to each other, racism would begin to dissipate and, and go away. And I think it worked for a while, but then you know the, the darker forces kind of have kind of jumped in and I, you know, again, I think it's taken a lot of people by, by storm in terms of how, how shocked we are. And the exposure, the living together, the working together, the going to school together, what, what else do we need to do at this point, really, to kind of understand from each other and learn from each other so that we can kind of eliminate not only racism, but racial inequity. Mm. So I think, mm. you know, th- this is why we're looking to this next generation. And I, I will kind of, kind of end this point by saying the thing that gives me hope is this young generation, whether they're climate activists or anti-gun violence in school activists or social justice activists, they are like, whatever y'all did didn't work. And we're really willing to look at some new ways of making a difference. And they're very vocal, they're very organized, they're very serious. And I think they're very determined, whether it's, you know, all of these different issues, I think they're, they're very serious about it. And they're really, I think, Whereas maybe my generation, we kind of like just keep chilling. <laughs> this generation is, is very much about making change. And mm. I think we, we can look to them for hope. And I think that's what excites me about this position at Sean and the work that we're going to be doing. Is let's give you guys the tools and, and the, the knowledge and the skills that you need to take your passion and to really go and affect change. So that's kind of, that's what our goal is here. Yeah. And I love, I mean, in, in a way, we haven't, we've talked to a lot of people and asked a lot of people that question, like, what's a fusion friendship? In a way, you're actually modeling a fusion friendship across difference of generation, right? Because you're, you're actually saying, hey, which is actually its own rarity these days when you have these generational lines being drawn in the sand where it's like, okay, 
we're pitting all these things against each other as if there's one right one that's perfect and all the other generations, which is all we always think about our own generation. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> whatever generation we're in, which is, which is true, whatever identities we carry into conversations, right? Whatever exactly. it is, we give our own selves the love and say, you're the one that needs to move to be more like me. And I just exactly. love that you're taking the posture of saying, you know what? I'm, you know, I've got a lot of lived experience. I've got a lot of wisdom, but also I know that we need, I need to invest in this next generation and mobilize them because they're the, they're going to be the future baton holders here. And I get, I get the joy of building coalitions with students to take mm-hmm. this work forward. And mm-hmm. I think you're modeling, anyways, you're modeling that, that and living that in the role that you're in now. So uh, Dr. Moore, this has been a joy. I, I don't, we always try to uh, not let our guests go before we ask one final question, kind of landing the plane practically to the ground. Because we we started at the 10,000 foot level and I love the the layers of the onion that we peel back here. But for our listeners who are hearing this and they're just wanting to, they're wanting to take a step. It can be big, it can be little, but some type of practical next step to say, what do I do with this information? What do I do with, with hearing this to move forward on applying what I'm heard today, what would you give to our listeners who are just looking to take that? Just what's just one thing that they could do? You do one thing. You can do. You can. I, it's, it's it's just it's a phrase. You it's it's a okay, loose I know, phrase. I you know. can do more. If you <laughs> well, of course, obviously, I would say voting. You know, mm. not, not only register to vote, but also to vote. Your vote makes a difference. But but also, in addition to vote, you have to be informed of what's going on in your community. I'm now just moving back to the Triangle area. And even though I have friends and family here, really finding out what's going on on the ground. What are these local issues that are impacting Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill and the rest of Wake County? And especially for our college students, some of you come from rural areas and other cities and states. What's happening in your community? So you really need to be informed about what the issues are in your community. So for your listeners that are all over Each of you have different issues that are confronting your community. And I would say pick an issue and get involved in what, you know, if you're concerned about education, then tutor. If you're concerned about environmental racism or environmental injustice, then figure out ways in which you can help impact some of the things maybe with with waste production or how how waste is collected and where these waste plants are, are, are put or if you're concerned about gentrification or even helping people afford solar panels on, on their homes or help the elderly fix up their homes. I mean, there's just so many different things that you can do. So I would say be informed, find different sources of information so that you can understand both sides or more than multiple sides of the issue. Perhaps look at a news source that you don't normally look at and read to find out what else is going on. You know, it used to be we had our, you know, my father's a former journalist. We got news, every Sunday we got newspapers from all over the country. So I'm used to reading news from all over the country and you find it there's different perspectives and different points of view in certain stories or things that are happening nationally as well as regionally. And that kind of gives you a worldview of, of everything that's happening. So I would tell people, really find out what's going on in your community and, and verify your sources. Don't let social, I would say, because I come from my background, I, I don't understand how people get their news from social media. I don't understand that at all. So <laughs> I know that that's what people do. But go to the news source, sources and sites themselves. As a former professor, we used to have to tell our students, you know, when you're doing your research, you've got to evaluate your sources. Is this a good source? Is it not a good source? Are you getting it from the journal of, of higher ed? Or are you getting it from People magazine? Mm. 
not saying that People Magazine is, is not a, a good source, but in terms of scholarship and research, mm-hmm. I don't know if I want my students to, to quote something from People Magazine. Maybe I would need to have a look at other news sources to find out what happened with the story. What happened. Mm. And I hope the people from People Magazine don't call me. I don't, I don't mean that in to be slight, but in terms of academic research, mm. we want our students to use academic sources. But it's the same thing right now in terms right. of the things that are happening in the public. I would say that perhaps if you're trying to find out what's happening with, with a celebrity, that maybe People Magazine is a balanced source. It may be more of a balanced source than what somebody put on social media. So you've got to really evaluate what's happening and weigh for yourself and really kind of pay attention to the other point of view and perspective and say, you know, I never thought of it that way. Hmm. And then once you evaluate that source, you can move from that. Dr. Moore, how can people follow the center's work? Yeah. I know you mentioned having courageous conversations where you're, you're really listening to the community as you listen to the voices of your students. If people are wanting to lean in and maybe add the center as one of their sources for thoughtfulness on these issues, what ways can people track you online? Uh, I know that you mentioned, you know, social media isn't the only place, but if there is, you know, wh- where are you present in the World Wide Web? If people are even still using that phrase, I may have dated myself a little bit there. But how can people find out about the center and track your work? Well, we do have our website, uh, which is www.crsj.org, which is the Center for Racial and Social Justice.org. We tend to write blog posts in response to things that are happening currently. I'm in the process of hiring someone that will be managing our social media as well. Uh, we do have a Twitter account. We have Twitter and we also have a Facebook account. And I have to be honest with you because of all the amount of work that we have done, I have not been as active on social media as I should be. But we also have people that are signing up for our newsletter and we're in the process of getting our newsletter produced as well so that people can kind of find out and maintain, you know, a following in terms of some of the work that we're doing. And and I have to say, in addition to the vision that we've talked about, we have been really, really, really busy with so many different community projects that I really haven't had the chance to really kind of talk about that the center has been involved in. But most of those things are on the website. We've got to do some work to kind of constantly keep people up to date because I'm like, oh, I don't even know about this. We've done that. So even though I'm new into the role since July, the center was managed by two of our deans, Dean Johnny Hill, formerly of the Divinity School, and Dean Valerie Ann Johnson of the School of Arts, Sciences, and Humanities. So they did phenomenal work in terms of getting the center off the ground and getting you know as many of these projects up and running. And I will say too that we've got a lot of requests for community partnerships. And it's, it's really refreshing to see so many people want to get involved in social justice, as you all spoke about earlier, that, that many people are, are engaged and wanting to do this work. So we're evaluating all those different partnerships, trying to figure out you know, our capacity to, to really impact change, whether that those things will be, will be able to actually to move forward. But there's a lot of stuff that we've been doing, and I'm, I'm very pleased with the work of the center. I'm pleased with the support that, that we've had from the rest of Shaw community. Other departments here have been instrumental in, the, in its success. So I may be the face of, of the center, but trust me, every department, student leadership, uh, the students as well, everyone has really been involved and supportive of the work that we're doing. So even though you see my face, please know that everyone here at Shaw University is really supporting the work at the center and we have the full support. And we're really excited about some of the things that we're going to be doing in 2022. We're looking forward to, to really really planning our feet in having the city and community of Raleigh Wake County kind of see the work that we're doing. Dr. Moore, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We're looking forward to seeing this vision unfold and for as you continue to push this 
really powerful and impactful legacy forward for Shaw University as you have set the tone you know, for, for the South and beyond. We know that those are big shoes to fill, but you also stand on the shoulders of giants in many ways. Absolutely. Uh, such a powerful legacy. So I, I personally am looking forward to continuing to follow you and your newsletter and just the work that you're doing and, and as you advocate on so many fronts in our community. So grateful for you and, and the, the work that you're doing. Thank you for being okay. a part of the Just Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to share with you guys. Have a great day. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 